So, Joey, can you like introduce yourself for the audience again? Yeah, so I, I appreciate you having me on uh, again. And so for those that, that maybe didn't listen to the first one, uh, I'm currently entering my fifth season uh, with the Memphis Grizzlies as a strength conditioning coach and a sports scientist. Um, before this, I worked in college, uh, University of Wyoming, You really all sorts of sports, uh, football, Olympic sports, and, and that's really where um, I got my feet wet in addition to some other uh, experiences, some other colleges. Um, but yeah, so so entering my fifth season, I handle all the sports science responsibilities with the Grizzlies, uh, and then I'm one of our three strength conditioning coaches. Cool. So besides basketball, which sport do you love the most? Uh, well, I actually, I wouldn't say I love basketball. I, I think there's a lot of opportunities to improve basketball players uh, through training and through programming. Um, I would say, you know, I grew up wrestling my whole life, so I'm, I love combat sports. Um, I would say that's probably like my my favorite sport. Um, but yeah, to like train, I, I really love the the sport of basketball. Now I wish there was more of the wrestling culture in it, but um, but it, it's a it's an amazing opportunity to work with athletes. And like I said, I just I think because of the small population size you have an opportunity to really move the needle. And that's not to say that people aren't doing an amazing job in other sports. Just sometimes when the team and the rosters get so big, it's it's hard to get super detailed with with each athlete. Nice, nice. So it's the fifth season you're in the NBA. So um, what's the difference between, what's the difference in the fifth year and the first year? That's a great question. That there's a lot. Uh, I will say, you know, I've been fortunate to be a part of really the same staff all five years. And so if you think about like a startup, right, the things that are going early on first, you know, year, second year, it's it's super muddy. We're still trying to figure out how how do we leverage each other's skill set the best? What are we trying to choose going forward? We'll try some you know, methodology for a couple months, all that didn't work. And so you kind of are at this like inflection point now where all of the trial and error, it's not to say it goes away, but we sort of started to figure out what works for us. And that's not to say that same thing is going to work for others, um, but we've really figured out what works for us. So to directly answer your question, it's like the things we're doing now are just much more streamlined and effective uh, and we have more confidence in them as opposed to maybe earlier on that was a little bit grayer. Nice, nice, nice. So, uh, like you mentioned, you're working at like the sports science stuff and also strength and conditioning. So, how exactly do you balance these two roles? Well, it's it's not easy, and and in full transparency, I'm I'm not sure you can be elite at both, especially at the same time. Um, you know, fortunate for me is we have other practitioners who are outstanding strength conditioning coaches, physical therapists, athletic trainers. And that then allows, you know, myself to really fulfill my sports science obligations to like the highest level. Right. Um, you know, if you're young, if you're a you know young practitioner, maybe listening to this, I do think doing both is an amazing way to improve your resume, improve the way you maybe see training, the way you see athlete care, athlete management. Um, but in order to do that, you probably have to learn how to automate as much as you can. 
Uh, and that's something that really allows for improved balance because you're not spending so much time entering data or manually doing tasks. Let the software handle that. And then that allows you either to analyze at a deeper level or spend that extra time coaching. So I think that's how you, you know, at the very beginning, balance it, right? If you're young, you learn how to automate the stuff you can, you analyze the stuff you can't, and then you obviously spend that extra time learning, coaching, uh, working with athletes. Um, so, and then as you go on, it, it, I think it depends on the team you have. Like I said, we have an amazing group of strength conditioning coaches um, at our disposal. So I don't have to be the best strength coach or the expert in the room because I have them to turn to for ideas and methodologies. Now I still have to be very effective for the athletes that I do work with. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean I have to have 10 guys, right? Because we have other people on staff. So I can go super deep on maybe the three to four guys that I do have do my sports science responsibilities. Um, but having a team around me that's able to like pick up the areas and go super deep. That's, uh, that's, I think how you, how you build balance. Nice. So, um, do you think that because like there's gonna be tons of coaches have like twenty or thirty years of like experience of like coaching, and at at that time when they started, there's not they don't have like force play, they don't have GPS. Yeah, so right. exactly, I mean, um, to study a lot of like these. And being able to like uh, know what metrics you should use and what you should not. Well, I think the you know the technologies are just sort of confirming what these strength coaches have known for a long time. You know, if you think about those, if you've been in it for thirty years, you're an unbelievable coach. You've seen more than I could have ever seen, right? And so think about something like VBT, right? You know, VBT has obviously been around a long time, but this idea that as you approach, um, you know, a failure velocity, right? So we have something to measure that now, but as you approach a failure velocity in an exercise, that is going to lead to a, a different adaptation than let's say uh, exercise where you're moving the bar really fast, right? Without the technology, you can still program these things. You program speed stuff or you program max strength stuff and that's what these strength coaches have done forever we just have technology to sort of confirm that and maybe get a little bit more precise and that's not to say that these older coaches are wrong they were the first ones that were right we're just maybe coming along and finding a, a more concrete way of analyzing it um you know you talked about force plates it's like you know, obviously force plates have been around for a really long time. Now the commercialization of them has really exploded, but even before they were, you know, really popular, you had greats in the field, Berkashansky, Bondarchuk, like they're talking about these things in their books, you know, and it's like, okay, they're talking about it. They've addressed it. There's papers that go back to the sixties and seventies on this stuff. Like I said, the VBT, we're just maybe making it more readily accessible but I think those those practitioners that have been in it like 30 years, I think they're still the experts and the people that we should be asking because their intuition may be telling us more than like the data is telling us sometimes. Nice, nice. I love this. So last time we discussed a little about like force plate metrics. This mm -hmm. time I want to ask is about like, what are the metrics you use to like track the workload 
for like a single training session or a long period of like the whole season. Are you talking about in the weight room or on the court? Both, kind of both. Yeah, so um, so we'll split that into two. You know, in the weight room, we just based on our environment, it's it's difficult, right? We spend a lot of time on the road, a lot of time at home. And so, uh, you know, some of the loading devices that we use are different, right? So it's like if I'm at home, we can maybe do, you know, barbells, let's call it front squats, but we might not have a barbell on the road, right? So we only have machines. And then we have machines on the road. It may be a techno gym uh, leg extension, whereas we have a Kaiser leg extension. And so it becomes difficult to like coordinate like a, a annual plan in terms of like tonnage that maybe you were doing like weightlifting, uh, like competitive Olympic weightlifters would do. Uh, with that being said, we still have tried to find ways and, and we haven't mastered it yet, but tried to find ways to better capture workload. So sometimes we'll, we'll think about like effective sets, right? So if you have, maybe you're looking at like eight to 12 sets per week uh, for a given muscle group, that maybe gives you confidence that that tissue is prepared or that tissue is getting stronger or getting the right stimulus it needs to continue to grow. Um, so that would maybe be an example of on the court or in the weight room on the court. We, we have, obviously, since we have, uh, you know, technology to measure this, uh, it's in my opinion, just a little bit more black and white. It's a little bit more concrete. Um, because if you're running, it doesn't matter if it's on the court, um, in our practice court, in the FedEx form, which is where we play or Madison Square Garden, right? The the running's the running, the distance is the distance. So that's what makes it a lot easier to track. So we kind of break it up, right? Because if you think about basketball, the goal of load monitoring is, you know, effective load management, it's mitigating injuries. And to do so, you need to understand like what are the injuries and why are they why are they happening? In basketball, we see a lot less like acute muscle strains compared to maybe soccer or football. Just I think that's that's the nature of the sport, smaller field sizes. Um, but you do see more, you know, chronic degenerative stuff. You see, you know, meniscus and you see ligaments, you see chondral issues, bone stress injuries, right? You see these types of injuries maybe more than you would in, in soccer and football. So when you think about that, you want to think about, okay, what are the metrics that can give us some insight into how those structures are being loaded, right? Because it's the overload of those structures that typically is what causes the injury. So when you look at the court, you say, okay, well, I've got my, you know, we use Kinexon, Catapult, whatever your technology is that can give you an idea of workload on the court. We break it up into volume and intensity, right? Volume is how much they've done. Intensity is, you know, the, speed or the intensity of that session right so volume we use distance right we use distance just because it's simpler than maybe some of the proprietary stuff that some of these technologies give so we like distance um i think part of that too is before uh we had any game data uh you could get distance from second spectrum from the cameras in 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 game right so you have practice data in game data now we're fortunate to have both so use distance for volume. How much have they done? We then say, okay, well, how do we get an indication of intensity? How do we get an indication of how much force is going through those structures that I talked about before, right? And what we've settled on is we've said, hey, you know, the, the activities on the court 
that sustain the highest ground reaction forces are probably putting the most stress on those tissues. So how do we get a metric? How do we get a proxy for that stress? And for us, we've settled on uh, high accelerations and high decelerations. Now that's Connexon's um, metric. So basically they've said, you know, when an athlete accelerates or when an athlete decelerates, they break it down into like low, moderate, and high, okay? And we, we take the high accelerations, the high decelerations, and the high sprint efforts, and we combine those together and call them events, right? So anytime you quickly accelerate, we say, wow, okay, that was probably a lot of force through those tissues. We want to know that. So that counts as like one event, right? One acceleration event. To get intensity, we you know, sum all of those together to get an aggregate. And we'll look at that number by itself, but we'll also break it down into a per 30, right? So a per 30 minute, it just makes that number a little bit bigger and more digestible um, for coaches, for practitioners who maybe not be too familiar with say what um, mechanical load is, or sometimes when you're working with density, right? So per minute would be like, in would be density as opposed to intensity. And if those numbers get super small, it just, it, it's confusing sometimes for those that are less informed to understand. So that's why we do per 30, um, just because, because it makes sense. So that's kind of how the court would work. We break into volume intensity. You could have a high volume and a low intensity session. You could have a high intensity, low volume session. You could have both. Um, this is where maybe Bose quadrant system would, would come in handy because uh, you can help bucket that stuff a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's how we're tracking workload workload throughout the year um, to give us an indication of how much and, and how intense our guys' sessions are, both practicing games. Nice. I love this. Thank you for bringing them in so much detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, to, to monitor, to manage, and to check the workload, is there like certain way you calculate like the acute chronic work ratio well yeah i mean it's the acute chronic workload ratio is interesting you know it's it's obviously been in hot water past couple of years and i i've spent a lot of time thinking about this right because at the end of the day we're just trying to get some idea of of training stress balance right we're trying to get some idea of okay how much has the athlete done recently versus what they're maybe prepared for and the huge chronic workload ratio came along at a time where we didn't really have a way to quantify that and it was almost so simple that people grasped onto it and they used it for something that maybe it wasn't intended for which was you know injury prediction or injury mitigation and i think that's where maybe we took a step wrong but that doesn't mean it's not useful in any way right so if you think about like even like rsi the reactive strength index it's a formula right it's an algorithm huge chronic workload ratio is a formula it's an algorithm dynamic strength index like any of these ratios that we're pulling from technology there is some level of um you know falsehood that comes along with them right but as long as you're using the tool for a specific reason, that might make it useful. And so how we use the huge chronic workload ratio is sort of as this like bumpers, right? If you think about like bowling, right? You know, you're trying to avoid the bumpers, but when you hit them, you, you, you take a look at your, you know, 
training load calendar and say, okay, you know, where can we maybe pull workload from or where can we add some stuff to? So in, in our season, you know, we may have a, a week where we play two games and a week where we may, we may play four, right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if I played four games this week and two games last week, the workload of this week is much higher, right? It's double than the previous week. Well, the huge chronic workload ratio is going to show that. It's going to quantify that. And it's not saying, oh, well, the athlete's going to get injured. It's just telling me, hey, these structures that we talked about before, right? These bones, you know, ligaments, meniscus, you know, whatever the, the tissues that you want to talk about, muscles even, they're overloaded compared to what they were the previous week. Now, hopefully that athlete's prepared for that, right? Prepared for that spike because our best remedy against injury is greater preparedness. But if they're not, that gives us an idea of, hey, when we're building out next week's training plan, let's keep that in mind, right? Where, hey, maybe this practice that we had planned on Tuesday, let's pull that from a high session, maybe to like a low mod session. So what the acute to chronic workload ratio does is it allows us to quantify what I just talked about, right? It allows us to quantify the athlete's most recent workload and a spike or not a spike compared to what maybe they're prepared for. And so we can then make adjustments because we're also looking at a lot of different things. You know, it's like, if I have a dashboard, we're looking at, Hey, what have they done in training? What are maybe what are their basketball stats? Oh, they're dealing with foot discomfort. We got a lot of stuff. Future chronic workload ratio is a nice number to get an idea of, Hey, where's an athlete at this week relative to say the past month or so. Nice. So, can I can I replace it with like like force play data we discussed before like reactive strength index or like eccentric peak force that kind of stuff to like monitor or to track where the athlete is right now? Yeah, I mean I don't think it's it's a replacement. It's probably a supplement. You know, where if I have let's say I you know I have a trend line running of of an athlete right, and you know we're seeing let's say we pick a metric that is uh, what I would call load response metric, a metric that is pretty sensitive to changes in neuromuscular capacity. Well, what we typically would see, not always, because this is where the huge chronic workload ratio is not perfect. When that starts to, you know, creep up a little bit, when what they've done recently is more than what they've done in the past couple of weeks, we may see an inverse relationship where those metrics might drop. Right. So if we did pick eccentric peak force as that metric, we might see huge chronic workload ratio increase as that number decreases. Now, this is very conceptual. This doesn't always happen, um, but it may. Right. Because an athlete, as they get tired and we've seen this, as they get tired, as they get fatigued, uh, eccentric duration slows, eccentric peak force drops. Right. And that's also not to say that just because those numbers are going up doesn't mean they're not fatigued, but it's nice to be able to compare something that's, um, you know, maybe more like output driven, like the athlete versus something that is bigger picture, maybe a month. You know, if you think about seven to 28 days, you're huge chronic looking at that relative to, hey, where is an athlete on a given day? What is the actual state of the system? Cool. Cool. So. Uh, after our last conversation, there's like Chris Bishop published the metric. I forgot the the, the name of the paper. Selecting the metrics that matters, and mm -hmm. Daniel both just published his new book, Takeoff, recently. 
Yeah. So does these like the paper and the book change like how you view data or how you pick data? Uh, sometimes. I, I mean, I think, you know, it, obviously those are two unbelievable, pra you know, practitioners. I think they're some of the best in the world. And so anytime they put something out, you have to say, okay, well, wh what am I currently doing? What are they proposing? And then like lay them on top of one another and figure out like, okay, where, where am I, where am I off? And in, in both resources, you do start to get an idea of, okay, is the metrics that Chris Bishop is recommending, are they similar to what I'm doing? Because they don't have to be the same, right? You just want to get close to, hey, if he's saying that these metrics are indicative of fatigue based on the research he's done, I want to make sure that I'm picking similar phases of a counter movement jump, um, that I'm picking similar like types of output. So is it force or is it time or is it a combination of both or is it derivatives of each? So, you know, in that, and then if you look at Bob's book, you, I think we're on track, you know, and like I said, that's not to say that there aren't opportunities for tweaking things. Um, but we're also still at a very simple level. Like we're still not doing anything like super crazy where, yeah, eccentric peak force is eccentric peak force really no matter where you are in the world. And so that makes it simpler as opposed to using maybe some like proprietary metric that someone's invented that becomes a little bit tricky because you don't know how reliable it is. You don't know how valid it is. Um, but I think we've picked metrics that fit both of those buckets. And it's nice to see a lot of them correspond with what Bishop is saying and what, what Bove is saying. Um, because like I said, they're just, they're really bright individuals and it's nice to be like on track with them. Nice, nice, nice. So uh, after that, last time we discussed mainly about like eccentric peak, peak force, after like these two papers, is there other like metrics you can, you are looking into? Well, the one thing that that Bove sort of, you know, I shouldn't say like opened my eyes to because I'd heard it before, but he did such a good job synthesizing it is just the ways to uh, change the metrics, right? So through training, right? He, he presents so many, you know, examples um, of ways in which, hey, through bands or chains or flywheel protocols, like you can alter these metrics and the, you know, force trace signatures that accompany them. And so it's not necessarily the metrics themselves, but it's how you accomplish those tasks, right? Is it a depth jump? Is it a squat jump? It, okay, yeah, the metrics are important, but it's really the execution of those. And then it's the improvement of those, right? What methods are you using to improve those, improve those qualities? I think that's one thing that I got from his book um, that, you know, was sort of, yeah, a bit of a refresher, but also um, a, you know, perfect timing in terms of clarifying things that I've been thinking about, but he just did a, a such a good job synthesizing it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I, I feel I, like I should, uh, I feel like I should plug his book. This is a <laughs> takeoff by Daniel Bo. Make sure you buy it. So shout out to, shout out to Daniel Bo, man. So here, here's an interesting thing. I, I I translate his uh the quadra system into like Chinese version, and I thought the basketball team, the basketball strength coach, is gonna purchase 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 the the course, but after all, it's mainly like 
baseball strength and conditioning coaches in Taiwan purchase that more. That's interesting. Interesting. What, what what do you think that? Why do you think that? Because like Daniel Bov is working in the NBA. I thought basketball, like coaches in bas work with yeah. basketball environment would be like more into this. Do you know why? Do you know how baseball? Uh, the baseball coaches are using it. You mean how or why? Yeah, like what? Like what are they using it for? Like what are their? You know, what are the quadrants they're trying to? You know. Implement in in baseball. Oh, okay. Because uh, mainly the seasons here in Taiwan, the pro baseball season is kind of same, kind of the same with a major league baseball. They basically have to play a three or four games a week. Yeah. So before, like the quad, the book before the courses. This is what I heard. I didn't experience it. This is what I heard from. The coaches and the athletic trainer work work in that environment. That they don't really know how to like put in strength training during the during the season, or mm-hmm. they don't how they don't know how to manage the workload. I got you. So like quadriceps probably help them manage the workload and teach them how to like put in some game day lift. I got you. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's interest. It's interesting that baseball coaches purchase that. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I think takeoff is gonna change the game in Taiwan too. Yeah, our uh, our force play is pretty popular in Taiwan. It's just beginning. Just beginning, nice. Yeah, well, and... that's where that's where the states wasn't ten years ago. So yeah, and probably fifteen years ago, right? What was that? I mean, probably fifteen years, fifteen years ago. Yeah, I guess I, I'm talking like obviously four states have been around in labs, but I'm talking like since teams have had them. You know, ten years ago they really started to like take off, like college, like basketball teams, football teams, like everybody has seemed to have gotten them by now. So, this is the this is the main reason I think I should invite you because like you work with the data like every day. And also a strength mm-hmm. and conditioning coach. So it go back to the, the the first question I asked you because in Taiwan, like the data, force plate, velocity based training, even GPS is just started, mm-hmm. and yeah. coaches don't know how to like how to like what metric they should be using. Should yeah. they be just following the data or like should we be like following those like? those coaches who have like 20 or 30 years of experience which probably sometimes are a little conflict with with those yeah. data shows so what are your thoughts on that it's a really good question it's something that i think you know everyone struggles with uh early on you're just hit with like this fire hose of data and metrics and what do i do when do i do it you know it's really helpful at least for me now to think about like, what is the goal? Like, what am I really trying to do? So if you think about our environment, right, the goal is to minimize time loss due to injury, right? We we just aren't in a place, you know, I'm, I'm talking about in season, we're not at a place where for most of our guys, you're improving performance, right? Ideally, you're maybe making incremental changes, but really you're monitoring their current status 
um, to make better decisions about how you will load them, whether that's the weight room, whether that's on court. Um, and so for, for me, like knowing that as the goal, that then takes me to, okay, I need to monitor their current outputs. And monitoring outputs then drives me to certain technologies and certain measurements to do that most effectively, right? For me, that's force plates and that's GPS load monitoring on the court, okay? So that's how I landed, how we landed on those two things. We do a lot of isokinetic, our, our physical therapists do a lot of isokinetic testing because for them, the goal is to make sure that certain tissues and structures are maintaining or increasing a certain level of preparedness or robustness as the year goes on, right? So they're picking that technology to accomplish that goal. So I'd ask, you know, the coaches that that you know in Taiwan that are that are young, that are trying to figure out, oh, what do I, you know, what do I track? What do I do? Figure out like what your goal is. Like if your goal is to improve, um, you know, you work with track and field and you want to, you know, improve sprint times or acceleration times, then don't go buy a GPS, right? Go, if you can get a 1080 sprint or get some timing gates or get something to better quantify how you're improving acceleration, how you're improving top end speed, because that's what you're telling me the goal is, right? If, if your goal is to improve lower body power and explosiveness, I'd say go buy you know a VBT device, right? Go buy a VBT device and dive into the metrics that, People in that space, you know, Dan Dan Baker, for example, are putting out and saying, hey, these are the metrics that matter. So what you've done is you've basically taken all this available technology that you're confused with, and at least you're only confused now about one thing, right? And that's, you know, you're trying to figure out what metrics matter for a specific technology. So that's sort of what I'd say, you know, it's hard for me to say, oh, what metrics matter for every sport um, and every type of, you know, movement quality but my advice to those coaches that are like swimming in data, it's like really simplify it. You know, like how can you go? I was just, this is a random tangent. I was listening to a podcast with Matthew McConaughey, the actor, and he you know, tells the example of he had like seven or eight projects on his desk at one time and they were all on fire and he's trying to figure out, okay, how do I put out all these fires? Well, what he, he called up his manager, he said, you know what, I'm not doing all eight, I'm doing these three. These three are the most important things. And what he realized was that by eliminating everything else and focusing what was essential, he was able to understand those three things a lot better. And so that's probably my advice for young coaches in Taiwan or everywhere. We're like, oh, how, you know, oh, this person's telling me to focus on distance and basketball. And, you know, Bob is saying that we need to track this on the flywheel and say, okay, what is your goal? What maybe what technology can you use to maybe more objectify that goal and then just focus on that. Don't get so focused on all the other technologies. Just get really good at that and then maybe add another technology a year or two down the road and then add one more year or two down the road because that's still only six years. You're still really young and you now know three technologies really well. Nice. I love this. So this probably is probably some sort of like stupid question but i'm still gonna ask it anyway for different sports and for coaches who work they probably mainly work with force plate right now and probably need to like train different athletes with different sports from different sports sorry yeah do you think they should look into like the same metrics like eccentric force 
Oh yeah. It's a good. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, I think what they should maybe look into is first of all, the different types of tests, right? You have so many different tests. You've got a kind of rubric jump. You've got a squat jump. You've got depth jump. You've got single leg jumps, right? You've got single leg depth jumps. You've got a lot of different jumps. I think for certain sports, maybe looking at different jump types and then kind of going metrics after that. So, you know, for example, you could look at, obviously if you compared a, um, squat jump and a depth jump, or sometimes you could do squat jump, kind of room and jump and get like an eccentric utilization ratio that can tell you for certain athletes, um, you know, how well are they utilizing their stretch shortening cycle, right? Or, or if it's a sport that they don't need to utilize that, you then know that more too. So that's, that's, what's interesting. Like in basketball, obviously our guys have, have high EURs, um, because that's what the sport requires. But we may say, hey, with an athlete that we're trying to get stronger, we may make that a goal of ours to not bring it down as a bad thing, but make it so that that ratio is a little bit lower and more maybe muscular dominant as opposed to so elastic. Uh, so if you were to think about other sports, you'd say, OK, well, if I'm a volleyball player, right, and I'm I'm closer to the net, so I'm going to be jumping a lot, I'm, I'm really effectively doing a ton of plyometrics all the time, maybe I'm looking at a depth jump. Right. And so when I look at a depth jumps, that then takes me to a different suite of metrics. Right. I know some of these technologies call the metrics different. Right. Like four stacks may call something different than Hawkins may call something different. I'm familiar with four stacks. Right. So if I'm looking at something um, like obviously you have your like your initial peak eccentric force, but I still think that's pa passive. What I'm looking at is peak drive off force. You're really like more active deceleration. For a volleyball player that's close to the net, driving that number up might be super important, but for a tennis player, it's not, right? Like a tennis player, you may want to look at squat jump, right? Because a lot of times if I'm a tennis player and I'm getting ready, you know, let's say I'm getting ready to receive a serve and I have to, you know, I'm already starting in like this quarter squat position. So if I then have to move laterally right to left, yeah, the force plate's not a, you know, right to left lateral measuring device it's going to give you your capacity for ground reaction forces from like that like starting squat position. So if I'm a tennis player, I'm probably not using a depth jump. I'm using a squat jump and improvements in certain metrics, say, you know, concentric peak power, for example, in a squat jump, that might be the best thing to do for tennis. So just break up the movements of the sport and figure out, oh, what am I really trying to achieve? Like I said, with basketball, yeah, we do depth jumps in the off season, but in season, the goal is monitoring, right? The goal is load monitoring. It's not improving performance um, for some of our guys. For some of our guys, it is, but for some of our guys, it's not. So we're looking at load monitoring. We're going to use a CMJ as our proxy for that. For these other sports, that might not be the case. Nice, nice. I enjoy this. So um want to go back to probably the first question is like being working with like not really working with but like work with sports scientists and work with like uh strength and conditioning and you deal with data you coach as athlete mm -hmm. is it is it is it is it a very hard situation and do you think that future coaches should probably be like probably familiar with both sides of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more important that a strength conditioning coach is, is, is data literate than maybe a, a sports scientist is coaching literate, if that makes sense. Because 
a strength issue coach is data literate, who is data literate is going to be more powerful and effective, assuming coaching is constant, right? If, if you're a bad coach and you're data literate, I, I'm not sure that like is good or matters, right? But if you were to compare two equal coaches, but one was data literate and had an understanding of, you know, even just general statistics or how, you know, what technology is telling you, I think it makes it makes them more effective. You know, Jose Fernandez got in hot water um, like a, a year, year and a half ago when he tweeted that he thinks all strength conditioning coaches should know data. And I think I probably agree with him more than not. Um, and I just think that when you start to see data and you start to see what is the actual output of what you're having your athletes do, just adds another level of clarity um, clarity for you as a coach to make better decisions. So I think as, you know, if you're a young coach and you say, okay, well, I'm trying to be a strength coach and I'm trying to be maybe a sports, I, I want to do both. Um, I would say, you know, and you want to be a strength coach, right? Stick, obviously be an expert in strength conditioning, but learn the fundamentals of the data you're collecting. You, I think you have to know just general statistics an average, a median, like what does a standard deviation mean? Like, like the, these are the, maybe the foundations of becoming data literate. And if you can get that, I think that goes a long way. Understand, you know, the physics behind the jump so that when you're getting data off a force plate, sort of know what that stuff means. Um, so I think that's, that's how a strength conditioning coach who wants to maybe understand or at least become competitive in sports science should go is learn the statistics, learn how to run the technology. Uh, and then from that point, I would maybe recommend other things, which we can go into that. But I would say those are the first like two things that I would recommend early on is if you're trying to do both become and you want to be a strength coach, become an expert in strength conditioning, but know the statistics and know what the technology is telling you and how to run the technology. Great, great. So, um, if like this is probably a easy, this is probably an easy question, but for like for coaches who like um aren't aren't that like familiar familiar with data. Or aren't that familiar with technology? What do you recommend? Like, which device would you recommend to start with? Um, it's a good question. Um, I think it depends on the population you're working with. I always believe in solving the problem that you're currently dealt with, right? It makes no sense to me to learn uh, GPS monitoring if. if you if none of your athletes play field sports or you don't you have no way to influence how much they're doing on the court um or the field or the ice whatever it is um you know like for example wrestling currently doesn't utilize gps monitoring and there may be a technology down the road that's able to like capture the sports workloads right now to my knowledge there's not so if you work with wrestlers or combat sport athletes, learning GPS right now may not be the best use of your time, especially if there's all these other technologies that like are available that can help your wrestlers. Um, so, you know, in that example, maybe it's like you're trying to, 
you know, just better understand like heart rate, right? Like heart rate's kind of simple, but it, there's some complexity to it. And maybe your, your wrestlers can wear heart rate monitors and you can start to see how certain, you know, activities on the mat are changing heart rate. It gives you an idea of, Hey, on our high days, right? If you think, you know, quadra system, or you think high stress days, what are the drills that we do on those days that can lead to the adaptation? And then on low days, if you're trying to bucket certain practices into low stress days, what are the drills, you know, that accompany that, right? And so if you understand heart rate, you can sort of see the heart's responses to certain workload and certain drills and movements on the mat. So it's really tough for me to say like what someone should look at, because I believe in using technology to solve the problems that, you know, are currently at your fingertips. But if I had to give like one, like, Hey, have you learned this? It's going to prepare you really well for down the road. I would say probably force plates just because they're becoming so popular that it's nice to understand them. But I would say if you were to actually spend your time doing something that get, like makes you really lethal as a practitioner, it's learning programming and programming in the sense of like learning how to write code. Um, something like Python, for example, it is going to allow you to automate all of the things that the technology is giving you. So you don't have to spend so much time in Excel or in Google Sheets, whatever it is, because you let the software do that for you. So it's as a non-sport technology, but it's something that will really pay like high yield in, in your career if you, you're young is learn how to write code, Python, R, learn something like Power BI. Um, so that will be, that I think would be really beneficial for, for, for down the road. Do you know how to write coding? Uh, yeah, I'm not amazing, but I can do enough to, to get myself by and make my life a lot easier. Nice, man. Nice. Yeah. Last thing, okay. Last thing before I let you go. You mentioned that uh, coaches should be more like data literate. Does that mean like we should be like Shen coach, be probably a good Shen coaches first? And... Yes. Yeah. yeah. You, you, I, like I said before, you, you have to be a good coach first and foremost. If you're, if you're hired to be a strength conditioning coach, you need to be the best strength conditioning coach you can for your athletes. Um, with that being said, if there is data in your environment, in order to make that data the most effective it can be, I think you need data literacy. And I, like I said, all literacy really means is understanding basic statistics. Um, you know, there's a there's one good book that people could read. It's called The Art of Statistics. And all that's going to give you is it's going to help you understand what, what numbers mean in the context of other numbers right so when you're getting something from a sports scientist or you're getting something from a piece of software you know where that what that means in the context of the athlete if the athlete jumped their you know maximum you know that means that oh that was their best jump i know like everyone knows what a maximum is um but if i were to say you know hey this this athlete's data point is two standard deviations below their average that's really significant. You should know maybe what that means. Um, and that's not to say you need to know calculus, but like some of these basic statistics, learning that I think makes you a, a better strength conditioning coach. Nice. Appreciate that, man. That's kind of all the question I have for you today. So for those who are interested in what we are talking about today, where can they reach out to you? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not 
that active in terms of uh like putting out content on like social media uh you know i've been trying to get on linkedin a little bit more so um that's certainly an option if you want to reach out to me on linkedin um i've currently i kind of off twitter a little bit not because i don't like it just because i'm trying to have some free time for some other things i realized that was taking some time away um so like i said linkedin or my email like i i respond to emails that's maybe the best way to reach me um that's just joseph.c.davy at gmail.com um so that i'll respond to that honestly that that might be the best way and from there i'll probably just give you my phone number and then we can text and call uh from that point nice 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 appreciate that yeah